0: It's the time of the season when love runs high in this time. Give it to me easy. And let me try with pleasure at hands to take you in this. Alright, we are back. Let's do a little bit of follow-up on, on things we've talked about in this show and months past. I'm very proud of our denunciation of the announcement last spring that a group of astronomers uh, going by the name of BICEP had announced that they detected ripples in the sky, which are gravitational waves sounding the opening notes of the Big Bang. Some people were calling this one of the biggest science stories of the year. We were skeptical. And now the verdict is in. This finding heralded as potentially the greatest discovery of this young century, um, well, apparently is wrong. A report by astronomers using data from the European Space Agency's Planck satellite has confirmed the possibility that uh, interstellar dust contaminated the results. They concluded there was enough dust in Bicep's view of the sky to produce those swirly patterns they saw in the background microwave radiation without recourse to primordial gravitational waves. We get really tired of all these people talking about what happened in the first 10 to the negative 10 seconds after the Big Bang. Nobody knows. We think of this stuff as not that far removed from arguments of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. All right, we've also sounded a pretty sour note about the widespread epidemic of misuse for the most part of Testosterone supplements in men. A study came out last week noting that men with male pattern baldness may face a higher risk of developing an aggressive type of prostate cancer than men with no balding. And since male pattern baldness is related to testosterone, the possible link or potential link between testosterone supplementation and problems with cancer, in our opinion, remain. Of course, we should note that that opinion, like All those heard on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California, whose regions, as far as we know, for the most part, are not men with significant male baldness patterns. The people who did the study on balding and cancer said the level of testosterone isn't necessarily the issue but they did admit that testosterone also drives prostate cancer, and that could explain previous research that has linked male pattern baldness to the disease. Beware those of you who think that testosterone supplementation is going to do wonderful things for you. I can tell you this, if your main issue is erectile dysfunction, 49 times out of 50, you're barking up the wrong tree with testosterone supplementation. All right, we've also had many a nasty thing to say about the scandal in America of using most antibiotics in animal feed, September 19th issue of The B contains a reprint of Sabrina Tavernise's article in the New York Times titled, U.S. lays out strategy to combat antibiotic resistance. Said the piece, the Obama administration announced measures Thursday to tackle the growing threat of antibiotic resistance, outlining a national strategy that includes incentives for the development of new drugs, tighter stewardship of, ex- of existing ones and improvements in tracking the use of antibiotics and the microbes that are resistant to them. And while some experts were pleased that the president had finally focused on the issue, the article notes that some said the strategy fell short in not recommending tougher measures against the overuse of antibiotics in agriculture, which they argue are a big part of the problem. Under this order, Obama has created a task force, a a task force to be led by the Secretaries of Health and Human Services, Defense, and Agriculture, and it requires they deliver a five-year plan by February. Meanwhile, to quote from the piece, Americans use more antibiotics than people in other industrialized nations, with rates more than twice those in Germany and the Netherlands, according to the Pew Charitable Trusts. The United States also uses far more antibiotics in livestock than many other nations. Animals raised for food in America are given about six times the antibiotic doses as animals in Norway and Denmark. Apparently, the Pew Charitable Trust had put out a report recently about uh, about these problems, which led to this these actions by the administration. The article notes that many health experts were disappointed with the report, saying it virtually ignored a major source of antibiotic resistance in the U.S., the use of drugs in agriculture. The government has estimated that more than 70% of antibiotics in the United States are given to animals. And scientists and industry are at odds over how much that use in industrial-scale farming contributes to problems in people. Of course, the piece concludes by noting the National Pork Producers Council were pleased with the Obama administration's move, saying in a statement that Quote, the White House acknowledged something that the National Pork Producers Council has been saying for years. More epidemiologic research is needed to understand the key drivers of increased antibiotic resistance. Yes, they're absolutely right. And more research needs to be done into tobacco to see whether it maybe is having some bad effects on people's health. Speaking of tobacco, according to a piece in The Bee by Tamara Lush and Michael Fellerbaum, starting next month... America's remaining tobacco growers will be totally exposed to the laws of supply and demand. Oh, my gosh. Evidently, the very last buyout checks, totaling about $916 million, go out in October to about 425,000 tobacco farmers and landowners who were the last holdovers from a price support system and quota system that guaranteed minimum prices for most of the 20th century sustaining a way of life that began 400 years ago in Virginia when tobacco became the chief cash crop of the Jamestown colony. Yes, wouldn't it be terrible if tobacco growers had to actually face market forces instead of being propped up by our own government to produce a cancer-causing product? Hmm. On a happier note, I would say that I received some uh, materials in the mail relating to uh, water processing here in the greater Sacramento area. To quote from this glossy piece, in 2010, the state of California imposed strict new water quality requirements. To comply, we must upgrade our Sacramento Regional Wastewater Treatment Plant to a new tertiary process that will more effectively remove ammonia, nitrates, and pathogens from our discharge. Under the permit, the ammonia and nitrate removal must be implemented by 2021 and filtration and enhanced disinfection by 2023. I think I wanted to note that known as the Echo Water Project, the new processes will produce highly treated water, essentially returning it to a clean, natural state. Why have we taken so long to set up a tertiary treatment plant? This again addresses the issue of how it is our infrastructure in the United States is going to hell in a handbasket as uh, we seem to spend our money on other things like war. Of course, we have a sneaking suspicion that the people that use the water downstream uh, are not happy with all the ammonia nitrates and pathogens that are in the wastewater coming out of Sacramento, and that they want cleaner water for their own purposes. Again, water, politics, California, they are just inextricably linked. We're going to keep following the sordid tales. Something else that came in the mail of late was the California General Election Guide. We'll be talking more about these issues as Election Day draws nearer, but the one I want to address today is Proposition 46. Drug and alcohol testing of doctors, medical negligence lawsuits, and raising the cap on pain and suffering all rolled up into one confusing, messed-up ballot initiative. I don't mind telling you that as a physician, I think this is a really, really bad bill. To to quote from the argument against Proposition 46 from the Voter Guide, we have the following. California special interests have a history of qualifying ballot propositions that appear to be about one thing, but are really about another. Here's another one. Proposition 46 uses alcohol and drug testing of doctors to disguise the real intent, to increase a limit on the amount of medical malpractice lawsuit awards. This measure does three things. One, quadruples the limit on medical malpractice awards in California, which will cost taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars every year, and cause many doctors and other medical care professionals to quit their practice or move to places with lower medical malpractice premiums. Two, it threatens your privacy by requiring a massive expansion of the use of of a personal prescription drug database. Three, requires alcohol and drug testing of doctors, which was only added to this initiative to distract from the main purpose. It's true that the the sponsors of this claim it's about drug testing doctors, but the lawyers who wrote and funded this measure, to quote from the rebuttal of the argument in favor of the proposition, have never gone to the state legislature to propose drug testing of doctors. They have, sponsored three different proposals to get the legislature to raise the cap on lawsuits and make it easier to sue family doctors. All three times, the legislature rejected them. And no less than 10 times, trial lawyers have asked the courts to strike down the cap. Each time, the courts, including the California Supreme Court, found the cap serves its purpose by keeping costs contained, which preserves your access to affordable health care. I think I'll quote to a letter to the B from Dr. James Affleck from Gold River, who wrote to say, Groups spar bid to drug test physicians, page A1, August 22nd. This excellent article pointed out the real goal behind Prop 46, to increase the dollar limit cap on MICRA. It did not explain that the cap is only on general damages like pain and suffering, which cannot be measured and are arbitrary. Medical malpractice awards for medical expenses and loss of wages are limitless. When the law was initially negotiated in 1975, the fact that general damages would not be indexed in any way was realized by the trial lawyers and agreed to. It is misleading to give the impression that the total sum recovery is capped. That is precisely what the trial lawyers want. Drug testing of physicians is an issue that should be dealt with separately. And we want to applaud the B for its ad watch section dealing with a spot, a TV spot where a doctor talks about his addiction in a Prop 46 ad, one supporting the proposition. The B took a look at it and said this ad was mostly misleading. In their analysis of the ad, the B said the initiative's proponents are presenting just one of the measure's three prongs, random drug and alcohol testing. Omitted from the ad are provisions of the measure that would more than quadruple the limit on medical malpractice damages, which arts backers' primary objective, and require doctors to consult a prescription drug database before prescribing certain drugs. I guess somewhere in the ad they cite a figure of 500,000 health professionals who are impaired. The B notes that the 500,000 number is a stretch in more ways than one. First, it's a national, not a state figure that relies on a federal report that found 103,000 healthcare practitioners abused illicit drugs, and that 400,000 reported alcohol dependence or abuse. The numbers include registered nurses and home health aides. Whereas, of course, the random drug and alcohol testing mandated by this initiative requires only hospitals to screen physicians. A text on the screen of this ad also contends that nearly one in five doctors will have Substance abuse problems. But earlier this year, the California Medical Board clarified it doesn't have any empirical data on the number of physicians with substance abuse problems. This initiative is all about raising the cap on pain and suffering, which is rather subjective. Do we need to start drug testing all doctors? I don't think so. I'm wondering why we need to keep drug testing everybody in America when when surely the number one drug causing impairment of workers across this nation is alcohol. What's the toughest drug to pick up on a drug test? Alcohol. Some would argue that probably the least important drug out there in terms of impairing people is cannabis. What's the easiest drug to pick up on a drug test? Cannabis. If there is some untoward event and a hospital goes and tests a physician and it turns out that he's got cannabis in his system, he may have had that from smoking a joint Three weeks before, and has nothing to do whatever with whatever incident this was <sighs> and 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 this this ballot proposal also requires everyone who's going to write a prescription for a controlled substance to check the database that the state of California has out there. The state has already said this will crash the system if it's if it's checked by every single person if it's checked for every single patient that needs a controlled substance. And isn't it possible that if a doctor has been treating a patient for the last 10 years and wants to give him some hydrocodone because he needs it for pain, that, you know, you don't have to go check the drug database? Well, this law is going to just throw common sense out the window. And I'm sure we'll have a thing or two more to say, out, say about it before Election Day. Do want a noted grim stat from the New York Times regarding physicians. Turns out that doctors are more than twice as likely as non-physicians, to kill themselves. This is perhaps because of long work hours, emotional exhaustion, and intense pressures, especially during residencies. 400 doctors a year commit suicide in the U.S. We've talked in this program about what's wrong with American medicine, and and a fair amount is. And adding to that list is a piece by Elizabeth Rosenthal, from the New York Times reprinted in The B which talks about how drive-by doctoring can result in some rather large and unexpected hospital bills. The case in point was a patient named Peter Dreyer. He had to undergo a three-hour surgery for herniated discs in his neck. Noted the piece by Rosenthal, Dreyer was prepared when the bills started arriving, $56,000 from Lenox Hill Hospital, $4,300 from the anesthesiologist, and even $133,000 from his orthopedist, whom he knew would accept a fraction of that fee. But he was blindsided, though, by a bill of about $117,000 from an assistant surgeon, a neurosurgeon based in Queens who Dryer had never met. This doctor apparently got called in to help assist the surgery, and since he was outside of the group, he submitted a whopping bill and got it paid. When the bill from Dr. Harrison Moo arrived out of network and for $117,000, Dreyer, uh, questioned it with the insurance company. The piece notes that in instances like this, sometimes insurers just pay to protect their customers, they say, which encourages more of this practice. When Mr. Dreyer complained to his insurer, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, that he should not have to pay that out-of-network assistant surgeon, Anthem agreed. agreed it was not his responsibility, and they cut a check to move for $116,862, the full amount. Now, for a month, Mr. Dreyer stewed over what to do with that check. Uh, He refused to sign it over to Dr. Moose, saying he considered it outrageous and immoral. He worried that such payments would drive up premiums at his employer. Dreyer tried to negotiate with the surgeon to divvy up the $117,000 in a way he believed was more fair. But last July, he received a nasty letter from Dr. Harrison Moose's lawyer, noting that he had failed to forward the $117,000 check, so he just caved and sent it along. Got to tell you, trying to run a national health care uh, delivery system using insurance companies and using HMOs and using our big pharmaceutical corporations, um, well, it's, it's not working out. And I do want to note that I do have some sympathy for people who have been victimized by the cap on pain and suffering because there are some such people. I know one very well. He was the victim of a rather, rather outrageous episode of medical malpractice. His surgeon apparently confused him with another patient on that day that he was sprawled out on the table in the operating room and proceeded to do things to him that were not appropriate. They caused some rather significant nerve injury. He went in there to get his neck operated on. The surgeon started operating on his back. Yes, these sorts of gross errors can happen. And because it happened in California, this person was only able to receive a couple of hundred thousand dollars for pain and suffering, which which in his case was pretty damn significant. In his instance, it would have been appropriate to have received more compensation for what happened to him. On the other hand, having seen our legal system <laughs> at work, or not at work, I guess it'd be more appropriate, and seeing the greed of of lawyers and their misbehavior, I have to return to the fact that quadrupling the amount that can be awarded in a case of medical malpractice for pain and suffering is probably not a good thing. No, let me strengthen that. It's not a good thing. And by the way, when are we going to start doing alcohol and drug testing on lawyers? And doggone it, we may want to just pause a minute and see if we can't throw out a few lawyer jokes at this juncture. I think I'd feel better if we did. All right, right, let's. how about this riddle? An old drunk, Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and an honest lawyer are walking down the street together and they all spot a $100 bill. Who gets it? Answer? Well, the drunk, of course, because the other three are mythological creatures. All right, how about this one? As a trial was called by the court clerk, one lawyer leaned forward and said to the other one, you're a complete and total fraud. The other lawyer turned to him and said, you're a penny-stealing ambulance chaser. The judge removed his glasses, looked at the two lawyers and said, well, now that counsel have been identified for the record, shall we go on with the case? And one final quickie. How do you save a drowning lawyer? Take your foot off his head. Actually, that allows me to back into a real-life legal example here. Um, The B. Sacramento Bee has apparently decided that it it needs in its editorial pages to demonstrate the word palaver. As a noun, it is described as prolonged and idle discussion. As a verb, it's described as to talk unnecessarily at length. And apparently in the Sacramento Bee, it's defined as Pieces by the Pacific Legal Foundation, Marcos Kulinakis, and apparently Jack Oman. September 21st issue of The Bee had, uh, had a long piece by Paul J. Beard II, described as principal attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, and it was a long piece about why it was important to protect the legal rights of billionaires, even when they're being jerks. He's referring to venture capitalist Vinod Khosla, the Silicon Valley titan who, uh, In 2008, paid a hefty sum to purchase 53 acres of oceanfront property in San Mateo County, including Martin's Beach. After buying the land, Costler decided to cut off public access to it. And to keep surfers from surfing there and to just, in general, be a horse's ass. By the way, this correspondent did some investigation down in the Martin's Beach area last month and discovered that um, the reason Mr. Costler was able to purchase this land was that the previous owners at least the older generation of the previous owners, had shown the bad taste of dying. And upon dying, state and federal authorities came in and said, oh, well, you guys, owe you owe us, well, let's see, we're going to value the land at, oh, I don't know, I don't know what the exact figures were, let's, 18 million dollars, let's say, so why don't you pay us six, seven, how's that sound? Didn't sound so good to the owners, who are not rich people, they just happen to own land, so this allowed... The venture capitalists to come in and snap up the property at a good value. We've taken the position on this program in the past that, uh, that the inheritance taxes in this country are a way of sticking it to the middle class because the 1%, the truly wealthy, they just don't pay those taxes. They don't give up their land in circumstances like this. It's all in trust, it's all tied up. Anyway had to get a laugh over this piece by Marcos Koulinakis about how Greece is apparently a bulwark of Western civilization against the minions of the East, the Middle East, said Angelo Sikapoulos' son-in-law. Greece was then and is now on the front line of the struggle between the West and an illiberal Near East that is increasingly radicalized, capitalized, on viol- and violent, now as then, Greece is bearing a disproportionately greater Western burden in this battle. Yes, yes, by all means, let's back those valiant Greeks. As we talked about in this program a couple years back when we told about the life of Kemal Atatürk, the Greeks always leave out the fact that they invaded Turkey at the end of the Ottoman Empire to try and establish a greater Hellenistic empire and got their asses kicked. Now it's true, we do owe the, the Greeks a great... Debt of thanks in recent history, owing to uh, Mussolini's ham-fisted invasion of Greece during World War II, uh, his screwing up the whole operation, and to give credit, the Greeks were offering enough resistance to screw up Mussolini, caused Hitler to have to bail his ass out in the Balkans, which delayed the invasion of the Soviet Union, which in turn probably was the turning point in World War II. But I think it's pretty clear that this guy's meandering essays uh, owe a debt to the fact that his father-in-law is the big mover and shaker in this town, you know, buys politicians wholesale, gets libraries named after him, throws his money around to make sure he gets what he wants. He's currently putting up $100,000 for Mayor Kevin Johnson's strong mayor proposal. Quite a character, that rascal, Angelo Sikopoulos. And if we ever find anyone who's got the guts to talk about him, we'll bring him on the show. But, um, that may be a tall order. On oh, the third item of palaver, the B's editorial cartoonist Jack Oman, he writes these meandering pieces. He started out with one without about a fascinating story about Senator Gary Hart's nineteen eighty-eight presidential campaign that proceeds to just kind of go nowhere. Well, perhaps I'm being a little bit too hard on him. He does sort of own up to the fact that. Uh, The cartoons he wrote years back uh, attacking Gary Hart for his indiscretions with a woman who was not his wife were probably none of his business. But, Jack, for God's sake, spice up your writing a little bit, will you? I mean, pep it up. Anyway, we should take a short break at this point, and uh, I think maybe go out with one final lawyer joke, which is what's brown and black and looks good on a lawyer? The answer? A Doberman Pinscher Of course I should add as we go out That there are good lawyers in the world There's Richard Estes, Ed Martin Guys that have been on this program Produced some good work here for KDVS You know And our good pal Steve Alexander Which got this, this program rolling A dozen years ago uh, So to, to you good lawyers out there You know, I'm just kidding, okay I was only referring to that 99.5% minority Of the rest of you guys <laughs> Anyway, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We got more to talk about. Stick around.